All right, well, good morning. This morning we look to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 5 to 11, and I would like to read those verses to you, and then we'll look at uh, exactly what it means. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of God, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Praise God for the reading of his word. We look to this uh, passage this morning, Romans chapter 8. Uh, as we continue from our time, as much as this passage is connected to all that was said before, uh, specifically the first few verses that we looked at last time, but also uh, Romans chapter 7. And it's joined grammatically, it's joined uh, theologically. Uh, but this morning we'll be looking at the mind and the Christian walk. We'll look at the mind and the Christian walk. And when we look at that, that is what Paul is concerned with. He's concerned with how the believer walks. He's concerned with the standard of the believer's walk, uh, but he's also concerned with uh, that walk in as much as uh, there's a war against the flesh and a successful one that needs to be fought. Uh, But I would say that if you could sum up the theater of warfare, spiritual warfare in the Christian, uh, the theater of warfare that goes on against the Christian, the hostility that goes on against the Christian, Uh, much of it begins as a battle for the Christian mind. And so I believe that when Paul says what he says, he's saying what he says because that is the reality before us, because that is exactly what Satan is attempting uh, to uh, be an opportunist against. But it's also uh, what we have to fight in terms of our thought life and all those things. So the battle is for the Christian mind. And it's not... Uh, as such, so as to win in the dangerous and unbelieving game of positive confessionism. That's not what I mean by the battle of the mind. I remember years ago hearing a word of faith sermon when I was uh, in that false teaching. And I remember this whole series on the battle of the mind. And it was all about positive confessionism, which is a tool of Satan to get you distracted from the fact that the battle for the mind is to get you to act in such a way so as you destroy the testimony of Jesus Christ and attempt to usurp his work. Uh, That is the war to be fought. It is a war uh, for the mind in that sense. And so it is why the Bible has scriptures that says, renew your mind daily by the reading of the word as I summarize it. It's why you're supposed to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. It's why you're fighting that war. Uh, it's why you're fighting that war. So it is an important war. Instead, uh, as as we compare this to what may have been falsely taught concerning the mind and the uh, Christian, so-called Christian metaphysical cults that are not Christian at all, uh, this is an active and passive war. 
It's an active and passive war. And the way I want to explain this to you is because this is what Paul is after. This is what he's trying to deal with. It is an active and passive war to establish the flesh as a ruling principle related to the sin principle. So that is the war that is for the mind. It is to establish the flesh as a ruling principle related to the sin principle. And if you can get the mind to side with the things of the kingdom of darkness, then by nature and the nature informs the mind, then you can get the mind and the nature to inform the actions. So now you're dealing with man's constitution. You're dealing with the fact that Satan is at war with man in his totality. But you also have to understand that in the flesh, your flesh is at war with these features as well. Uh, so that would be kind of an overall picture as to why is Paul dealing with the theme of deliverance? Why has he come here related to the Romans? And why is he so concerned with this conflict that people endure within themselves related to the spiritual battle to overcome sin? And you see it here. There's a number of verses that spells it out for us. Uh, he deals and goes directly to the mind, even in verse five, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And then he talks about the reality of those who are in the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. And he goes on and on about the mind. So it's of great emphasis to Paul the Apostle that if the Christian is to win the war against sin, against his flesh, against principalities, against powers, against Satan and the kingdom of darkness, the Christian is to win in their mind. But even more specific to our text, Paul also provides a simple distinction. And that distinction is to help you and I understand if we belong to Christ by either walking in his spirit or if you belong to the kingdom of Satan and of darkness as you walk in the flesh. And so the scripture seems to strip away all the things that people are distracted by and all the ways that people of their own pragmatism want to define who's a Christian, who's not a Christian. Paul seems to deal with it here and he goes, it's not only dealing with the mind, it's dealing with your actions, but you can also tell. You can tell. You can tell for yourself. And so he keeps it simple. The distinction is that the mind informs the walk. The walk tells you what your nature is. And therefore, you either are walking with a mind fixed on Christ and the actions play out your allegiance, your allegiance to Christ or the fact that you're born again. Or it's the other side. of it. But he certainly deals with. With the mind. And I think as we look at these passages together and kind of try to understand how it all plays out and how it relates, I believe that we're really answering the question to what is the mind bearing its allegiance? To what is the mind bearing its allegiance? Is it the flesh? That is the actions and thoughts associated with being spiritually dead, or is it the spirit? That is the actions and thoughts associated with being spiritually alive. And so Paul deals with this. Uh, I would say even before we get to verse five, the blessing that we see in Romans is that Paul not only talks about these distinctions, 
But he speaks about them in such a way so as to say that the Christian can determine for himself where he stands so that the unbeliever can see if the unbeliever is deceived, religiously deceived, can see there's something I need to do to walk away from this deception. These points are very clear. It's not as though he's speaking in such a way so that only the preacher can identify these things. He's talking in such a way so that Christians who are claiming to be Christians can actually view themselves within the scope of the lens of what he's saying regarding spiritual warfare in the mind. But verse 5, verse 5, we read it a few moments ago. I just want to repeat what's there to keep it within our minds. Uh, For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Much has been said about the mind. Much has been used in modern society to placate the mind. People study the mind uh, in many ways that are just unbiblical. People try to address the mind. And even in the theater of being a parent, a teacher, or some form of you have stewardship over people. And when people do something wrong, you typically ask them, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? But that's us realizing an eternal principle that the mind certainly informs the action and tells us the nature. And so you don't ask someone when they do something wrong, what were you doing? When you know, you ask them, what were they thinking? Because you know that the sum of the thoughts have led to what they perform. But it's also those thoughts were informed by a nature. And so it's important. It's important. And then when you think about how Paul identifies the importance of the mind in spiritual warfare, he's identifying in such a way where there's no pragmatism. You can't do it's no whatever works to your benefit. That's what you do. It doesn't work that way. It's either the mind is fixed on what God and his will is or the mind is fixed on what Satan and his will is or what the flesh wants. And if the flesh in the flesh are spiritually dead, you want what the adversary wants. But the mind is not an effect of the flesh in the sense that if we control our mind without righteousness, we can control our flesh to achieve self-righteousness. That is not true. Uh, In fact, that is the issue with the apostate Jews that Paul is trying to help the true Jews and the Christians in this passage understand the distinction between apostate Judaism and true biblical Christianity. And I would even like to call because it seems modern evangelicalism has an infatuation with the rabbinical features of apostate Judaism. I would even say that Paul is attacking that because that is an offspring of apostate Judaism. But my point is, none of this is mind over matter. He's not saying mind over matter. If you can control your own mind, then you can control things in your universe or things around you. That is not what Paul is saying. In fact, none of that is biblical at all. The mind is not only complicit, it cooperates in the one who is fleshly, but it is propelling the one who is fleshly into sin and therefore the consequence of judgment. The mind propels them because the mind is informed by the nature. That's the part that modern psychology doesn't want to deal with. That's the part that uh, so-called Uh, What we see in modern evangelicalism, all these talks, uh, these positive talks uh, coming up here and people talking to you and saying things that has nothing to do with sin. 
uh, or people uh, bringing you into some conformity to an institution or to a man. None of them want to deal with the fact that the mind is what we should be after to renew it in Christ so that we can drive you in the direction of standing up for him and for his righteous truth with the understanding that you must be born again. You must be born again. So this isn't mind over matter. The mind is corresponding to and informed by the nature. That's what Paul is saying. The mind is corresponding to. It's related to it. And then the nature informs the mind. And then the mind begins to act out in your thoughts. You begin to then act out in your mouth and in your members the actions as your nature informs your mind. So we should be after the mind. People who try to say that faith is either mindless or that Christianity is mindless, they're telling you a lie from Satan to get you to bypass the nature of the mind in spiritual warfare. The mind does what the nature informs it to do. So mind over matter. You don't control your mind if your nature is such as spiritually dead. You can't control your mind. You can't. And Paul will say this later as he deals with many of the things that he has to deal with from the rest of our text and has dealt with some things earlier as well. But it is why in the world in which we live, all the means the world takes to resolve the fleshly mind, they're empty. They're empty. Everything they do. The world at large seeks to medicate the mind. They want to psychologize the mind. And they even want to excuse the mind. But the mind is tied to the conscience. It's tied to the conscience, which is tied to the nature, be it either spiritually alive or dead. And we see this. I'm literally summarizing Romans seven for you, but also jumping all the way back to Romans four and all the way back to Romans three and all the way back to Romans two. So you see this. They're already according to the flesh and they live in that standard and their minds are set on the things of the flesh. Their minds are set on the things of the flesh. That's why they do what they do, because in their nature, they're spiritually dead and their minds are given over to the flesh. So you can't medicate the mind. You can't psychologize the mind and you can't excuse the mind. And just say somebody's having a bad day when they rebel against Christ. The mind is informed by the nature. You have to deal with the nature. And only the word of God does that. It's tied to the conscience. The person either acts in their body, which is what Paul says in verse 5. They either act in their body that which corresponds to their mind in righteousness or in unrighteousness. So they're either presenting themselves based on what the mind is being informed to do based on the nature. They're either presenting themselves to God being indwelled by his spirit or they're presenting themselves to sin, unrighteousness, saint and serving sin because their minds are fleshly because in their nature they're dead. There's no pretend clause here. There's nothing that says that over time a person can fake their way to righteousness or that over time things will start showing. Things will start coming out. You'll start to see, OK, this person has made the confession out of the mouth. 
but the mouth cannot betray the mind and the nature and the actions. It's a blessing that God has made it this way, because all in all, you can see for yourself where you stand. You can see for yourself. But Paul also presents this as the standard by which one can affirm if they are in Christ and pleasing Christ. He says that. Look at verse six. For the mind set on the flesh is death. It's death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. I mean, think about the simplicity of how he says this. It's very simple to understand with your mind. It's not that it is something you can't understand. It's that the mind itself will war against this if the nature isn't right with God. But he presents this as the standard that either you're pleasing him by his righteousness, by his spirit, by his. Because now you're talking about the indwelling of the spirit in you by his spirit. Or if one is walking in the flesh, then they will walk in accordance to that standard. And it produces an outcome. It produces an outcome. He says that for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Why? Why? Why is that the case? Why is it that the mind that is set on the flesh is death? Is it your environment? Is it how you grew up? Is it we don't have the right president in office, so we have to do what we have to do? Is it that, you know what, we're just trying to make it? Is it that we live in a red state or blue state? Why? Why is this the case? I could go on and on. He says it in verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. That's why. That's why the mind acts in accordance to what its nature bears. The mindset on the flesh leads to death because it's hostile toward God. That sounds like something that happened before me. And then I have to go all the way back to the fall being in Adam because of Adam's transgression. So because of that, in my flesh, I'm hostile toward God. My mind is hostile toward God. And look at this. Look at why it's hostile toward God. He further says, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. Oh, I know, but this person or these persons always talk about Christ. Yeah, but what do they do? What do they do? What do their lives look like? For it is not even able to do so. It's not able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's very important to understand, especially in the time in which we live, that being in the flesh is not a neutral thing. It's not a neutral thing. It's not like you can be spiritual. People always say that. I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. Or I'm a Christian, but their Christianity looks absolutely nothing like what the Bible says. Or they say I'm a Christian or we're a church or we do this and all the things they say and do have nothing to do with the word of God. Well, you're seeing the flesh at work. You're seeing the flesh. And people think flesh means going to uh, some place you're not supposed to go to, going to some worldly thing and acting in accords with the world. Being fleshly can be hypocritical. You can be a hypocrite. Because the flesh produces that which is uh, according to its nature. 
Hostile toward God. I mean, these terms don't seem like neutral terms. Hostile toward God. Paul wanted the Romans to understand this. If we look at the historical context, uh, Paul wanted the Romans to understand who were the true Jews. That's what he was after. Who are the true Jews? Because so many in that time, in the time of Jews and Gentiles, so many were saying that they were the true Jews, that they were the true circumcision, that they were the true seed of Abraham. But furthermore, beyond that, who were the true followers of Christ? It's amazing how simple this text is, how much is left out when you understand who are the true Christians, something we have brought up many, many times, not because we think we've discovered it some other way, not because we don't think there are any out there, but because the Bible says here are the true Christians. Here are the true sons of Abraham. If you were to have a conversation with someone in clergy, probably be dressed nice have some credentials, know how to speak smoothly and ask them how, you know, how do we determine? I mean, they love their title, so you would probably have to call them pastor and all this stuff. How would you determine who's a Christian and watch them rattle off all the pragmatic things that people have to do within their institution? And then they would say, that's what it means to be a Christian. And then watch how long it would take them. I could bet the house on this one. Watch how long it would take them to actually open the Bible and turn to passages like Romans and say, this is what a Christian is. And this is what a Christian does. Watch how many programs they shoot you through in order for you to figure out if you're a Christian. And watch you come out looking, talking and acting just like them. But you never opened up a Bible to understand if I'm a Christian or if I'm not a Christian. Sure, I act like a fraternity, but I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Sure, I belong to Christian organizations, but I don't know if I'm a Christian. But it's because no one is going to the text. And in this text, it is very simple. Christians walk like this. They conduct themselves this way. They live lives that are pleasing to God. They're not hostile to God. They're not hostile to subject themselves to his standard of righteousness. They look at and appropriate his law, worshiping the one who fulfilled it, and then looking and saying, now, what should I follow? Because since Christ has fulfilled the law, what do I then do to obey him? That's an issue. The mind, the mind. It is then that the mind from the nature either produces a love for Christ And listen to this, because a lot of people say love for Christ. Again, we're dealing with Romans. We're going to deal with it all the way through. A lot of people talk about love for Christ. But listen, it's not only love for Christ. It's actions demonstrating that love for him. It's a love for Christ that shows up in actions. Actions that show I love Christ. And because I love Christ, here's what I do. That's that's not only the motivator, but you can actually tie the evidence. It's evidence. Or the only other alternative is hostility toward God. Well, no, I'm not hostile to God. I quote him. I quote him on my uh, social media. I'm not hostile. I do conferences. I'm not hostile. I author books. But I'll tell you, you know what hostility is? It's rejecting his people. 
It's rejecting the Christians who are actually indwelled with him. It's, in, it's rejecting his word. It's rejecting his way. The Bible says, here is how you come to him. Here is how you worship him. Here is how you honor him amongst yourselves. And so you see this. Here it does not say, as we've gotten to verse 7 so far, it does not say that you may be religious and be okay. This is how modern man and woman, they think about all this. I mean, this text is very honest with us, so we have to be very honest with the text. They say, I'm spiritual, I'm religious. They have these buzzwords to stop you from being able to identify what it is they truly believe. What is it that you believe about Christ? Do you love him? Do you honor him? Those are fair questions to ask when someone says they're a Christian. They're not rattling off accomplishments to show some righteousness over you. But what they are saying is, here's the evidence. Here's my fruit. Here's my fruit. But then you begin to hear what they think about Christ. These people who say, I'm religious, I'm spiritual. Even people who use his name. Even people who are using his name for other purposes this hour. To achieve some government utopia. You begin to hear what they think about Christ. His salvation. The word in its parts. And in its whole. And then you hear more and more. That they have made a religion unto themselves. Because they don't want to deal with the fact. That they're hostile with the God of the Bible. So basically just make a new God. One that will be pleased with me. There's a term that uh, a late theologian used, and I believe it I believe it sits well with kind of what we're going through in the world today. Uh, It's called amplified humanity. The gods of so many people, the Roman Empire did it. And that is the time with which Paul is writing. But I believe we're dealing with a time where people are not serving the God of the Bible. They're ascribing deity to men and they're ascribing things to individuals and to institutions And they're saying these are gods implicitly. And so they're ascribing characteristics to them that are no different than men. They're no different than men, but maybe bigger, faster, stronger. Uh, There's a romanticism with all those things. It's amplified humanity. It's not deity. It's not deity. Because when we start to talk about the God of the Bible and what he's accomplished in the salvation, there's nobody like that. There's no one like that. When we talk about Christ rightly in scripture and preach him and proclaim him, there's no one like Christ. But when we talk about men, then you have factions. You have people ascribing, well, this person did this for this long. This person did this for this long. This person had this influence. This person had this influence. It's idolatry. It's amplified humanity. And I believe that Paul is also dealing with that because that was a feature, a fixture in Roman society. It was this idea that the pagan gods, they were just bigger, faster, stronger, more attractive men and women. That's all they were. But it was idolatry. It was idolatry. And we see that today. And it's why people can't find the truth. They can't find it. They're not looking for it. They're not seeking it. But they certainly can't find it if they walk into a place, many places that are saying they're Christians. Because they're looking at amplified humanity. But listen, 
All that has taken place because of what Paul says, that the mind set on the flesh, it's a fleshly mind that comes up with those things. It's a fleshly mind that departs from scriptures imperatives. And when the fleshly mind does that, it is demonstrating hostility toward God. It will not subject itself or arrange itself under God's law. Why? Because it can't. That's the explanation. It's not able. It's not desire. It's ability. It can't because the flesh, the flesh in its fleshly nature is informing the inability. This is why God came to deal with the flesh. That's why God came to deal with the flesh. It's because the flesh is hostile toward God. But here it is the same with respect to the unbelieving today yet churched. I call them unbelieving yet church because make no mistake. That is people want to speak about burdens. And want to go off to so many countries and talk to these countries about Christ. The burden here in America is you have the deceived yet church. You have the unbelieving today, yet they are church. That's an issue. There are those who gladly proclaim themselves Christian, but they dismiss the truth for theological and biblical vagueness. That's an issue. And you know why it's an issue? Because in the face of Romans, Romans is so clear about the nature of salvation, about the evidence of a person's walk, about where they stand before God. But here we have theological and biblical vagueness. And then what we do is we stamp that and say, you're in. Because you don't understand these things, because you don't make these things simple, either let's put you in a situation where we can reward you for making them complex or let's go ahead and stamp this vagueness and then say you're maturing, you're on your way. And let's throw life on life at you and all this other stuff. But none of that is how do I get to God? None of that is Matthew 28. Why? Because they believe these matters are neutral. They believe these matters are neutral. They believe the mind isn't really that. You're hostile toward God. You just need to listen to a few more tapes. You just need to do a couple more things. And then the mind will be neutral. And then in doing that, after a while, we'll win you. But no. Sin has so impacted society, the world, the nature, that you must be born again. The nature has to be dealt with. Some people just deal with the mind. They just feed you theological tidbits. They throw a whole bunch of books at you and you can read all those books, but they never deal with your nature. So now you just come out sounding like books. They don't deal with the nature. So you don't love the things you're reading. You vocationalize the things you're reading. You don't love them. That's the issue. That's the issue at large. That's the issue that trickles down. You have spiritually dead standing before people, giving them information and the people they're hopelessly reliant on that information, but nobody's natures are being changed. Nobody's natures are being changed. The issue is that in all that I've said so far, Paul is making a case that the matter of the flesh, the mind and the nature deal with our standing before God. Our standing as it relates to where we stand, but also as we will come before God and stand before him. That's important. 
But God's commandments, especially, especially, they help us understand that walking in the spirit is not neutral. You're fighting. You're fighting a war. You're fighting against things. You're standing for things. You're standing with Christ. And I believe that in the theater of spiritual warfare that Paul is referring, because that is where he's going with all this. In the theater of spiritual warfare, it is either producing a reverence for God or an irreverence for God. And let me split hairs a little more. You can have a reverence for men. You can have a reverence for Christian things. You can have a reverence for people who talk about Christ without having an actual reverence for Christ. I'm talking about a reverence for God that measures all those things against the scripture. That's what that's that's what so many fear today. When you begin to look at everything before you and say, "Okay, not only how does this line up with scripture, let me hold this all to the light of scripture. Let me hold this to the light of scripture. Why? Well, because of what's at stake. Look at verse six for the mindset on the flesh is death. I don't want to walk that way. I don't want to be in the flesh. I don't want to face eternal torment, eternal punishment. And I don't want anyone under my care, under my watch to face that. But but look at this even further. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. That's what's at stake. Eternal life and peace with God. True reconciliation and then eternal life. That's what I want people to have. Now, listen, life and peace in verse six terms that Paul left for the uh, terms that Paul used in Romans. They're not left for the Romans in the historical context, uh, the Jews and Gentiles in that era or us to try to create. He doesn't say create a tranquil life and create peace. What he's saying is if you're walking in the spirit, then that is your status. Remember, we're tying this to Romans chapter eight, verse one in its context. No condemnation. Well, Paul, what does that look like when I have no condemnation, when I can stand fearless before God because I am in Christ? Well, what that looks like is the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Eternal life. And peace with God. Reconciliation. That's what the mind set on the spirit looks like. Those are dealing specifically with salvation and reconciliation to God. That's what's at stake. That's why it's so important for my mind to be informed with scripture. That's why it's so important for me to walk worthy of the calling with which I have been called. That's why all those things that we've studied before in Ephesians, uh, they're so important because it leads to my standing before God, me being before him and having to give an account. The most frightening thing is when you have people doing things in God's name and it is apparent to you that they really don't fear standing before him and answering for those things. That's frightening. So many do so many things and yet they're not thinking. You can tell they're not thinking. You want to ask them yourself, what are you thinking? You can tell they're not thinking. I'm going to have to give an account for all these things that I'm doing and I have to stand before God. There is no plausible deniability before God. You can't say, well, God, I didn't know. That was 
my executive, quote unquote, my executive pastor handled that department. God's going to say, all these people were under your care. What did you do with them? Your family, what did you do with them? Whatever sphere or arena you find yourself in, what did you do with the people and what did you do with the time? That's important. Life and peace. Life and peace. I'm not talking about tranquility of environment. You know, you can aesthetically make people feel peaceful and you can make them feel like their lives have meaning by just creating things that are appeasing to the eye. I'm talking about the word's work, the nature of the word. Where you strip away all the profitability that men have attached to this and you begin to say, let's deal with this. Freely we have received, freely we've given. Let's deal with the word and deal with people's natures, starting with our own. You're dealing with life and peace in terms of eternity and God's eternal decree. It becomes apparent to you when people are aware that that's what they're dealing with. But it's also apparent to you when you become aware that that's people don't care about the eternal decree and dealing with eternity. You can see that. You can see that for yourself. It is something that we see. In this verse 6, as we're jumping back and forth between the two, that God has already established. He's already established this. He's already established the terms of eternal life, and he's already established the terms of our salvation. He's already established that. And so we're not creating those terms. We're not creating ways to get there. We're not creating ways to keep people there. He's established all of those things. Our role is to walk according to that standard. That's our role. Walk in that standard. Walk as though those things are true. The believer will walk in these divine realities. Thank God for our fellowship. And the truth of the matter is, being in Christ, the evidence to yourself is that you will walk in these divine realities. That is the evidence. That is the evidence of your salvation. It's not only the evidence, it's the assurance. It's the assurance. I don't have to create. We don't have to create for one another, any of us. We don't have to create a bunch of programs that best fit yours and my religious experiences. We don't have to do that. Because you know what I want? I want you to stand before the text and stand before God and then say, where do I stand? And as you begin to read the book, the book reads you. And then you say, here is where I stand. And now you have undistracted, unlimited assurance from him, from him. Or I could plaster my face on everything. I could introduce this, this and this as a means that pleases me. I'm really saying it pleases God. But if you do this and this, we're pleased. And then you do all those things, but it, it brought you no closer to God. It might even create the hostility that we're referring to. Because when I disappoint you, guess who you want to walk away from? God. Because I said I was representing him. It's a dangerous game. Let us return to the simplicity that Paul has written. The apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like modern evangelicalism doesn't trust the apostles anymore. They don't trust the apostles. Because they don't sit before you what the apostles said. And I'm not picking on them. They're making millions off this stuff. 
They're not the underdog. But the point is they're departing from the true and sure way that is so simply stated. I'm not saying it's, it's always easy to do. I'm saying it's simply put. Leave it there. Just leave that there. And let God do his work so that we can boast in glory in his name. But that's the issue. That's the issue. But to the flesh, the mindset on the flesh, it's not only in accordance, but that which the flesh produces. So you have both things working in verse 6 and also verse 5. It's according to the flesh, but as you read through those verses, it's also what the flesh produces, namely death. The unregenerate then are set on the works of the flesh. That's what they want to do. That's where their allegiance is. That's what they produce in and of themselves. Works of the flesh. And they are indeed hostile toward God. They're hostile toward God. One cannot, by, and I'm, I'm praising God that this is so. One cannot by their own means live in the flesh and please God. If they were able to do so, then all of this is pointless. Then Christianity itself is pointless. Praise be to God that biblical Christianity is not. Because there is that very sharp distinction. Believers and unbelievers. One cannot by their own means live in the flesh and please God. Again, this hour, the greatest distinction that needs to be made is not so much there's a world out there that's doing all this stuff that the world actually does that you can measure and say they're in the world. It's when people stand up and say, I represent Christ and their thoughts and their actions align with the world they're claiming to fight. And then you have to come to this text and say, well, if you're living in the flesh, you can't please God. I know you think you're pleasing God. You're not pleasing God. Because many think that they can. Many think that they can do in and of themselves works to please God apart from a born-again nature. Many believe that. Many believe that. Many believe if I just present myself, if I'm put together, if I speak a certain way, if I conduct myself a certain way, if I we live in a social media generation, if I present to you on social media that I run in certain crowds, quote certain theologians, read certain books, then somehow... Somehow, you will conclude that I'm pleasing God. But the question with all those things, when you push them to the side, are you pleasing God? Because there's only one way to do it. It's through his word and then the word informing the actions and the nature being born again by the confession of his name, by walking in him, by trusting in his finished work. And then now the life certainly is then pleasing God. But we have taken the accessories and we've made the accessories the means of salvation. Not we, that, because we don't do it here. But many think they can. They think since religious men are guided, or who are guided by their own law unto themselves are pleased with them. This is what it is now. They think since religious men are guided by their own law unto themselves and are pleased with them, that somehow they means they have pleased God. Because men are pleased with me, God is pleased with me. That is dangerous. 
Because all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, real persecution. Because you have a world system that's hostile towards you. I'm not talking about that there'll be constant hatred every single moment of your life. But I'm saying there'll be hostility towards your walk when it's authentic. There'll be counterfeiters. But to come to that conclusion, which so many are coming to, God is pleased. Because a lot of people like my quotes. A lot of people like what I'm saying. A lot of people seem to like what I'm doing. Never testing it with the scripture. Because people are pleased, God is pleased. That is not righteousness. That's called deception. And I mention this because that is what Paul is mainly concerned with. It's not me picking on anybody. Paul is concerned with this. He's concerned with religious deception. Because he spent the previous chapters before this one dealing with those who said they were true Jews. And think about if they're the true Jews, what bearing does that have when the Gentiles come into the church? It's why when we were studying Acts, it's why Peter has to get out in front of it. It's why Paul has to get out in front of it in Acts. It's why Jesus got out in front of it in the Gospels. He was dealing with this. There were people who were faking it and saying that they were spiritually affiliated with Abraham, his faith and his covenant. And they were lying. They weren't lying at the level of their mouths. They were lying at the level of their actions. And therefore, we know they were lying in their nature and they were lying in their minds, their thoughts. But this is also what the text is driving toward. This is where it's going for us. This is where it's going. There is a fine line. There's a fine line always in Scripture. And I believe this is spiritual warfare in and of itself. When we speak of the relationship between spiritual reality and spiritual deception, there is always a fine line. It's a fine line as to the true nature of things. Why? Because the flesh is aiming to fight a war against you in the spirit. Because you have a world system that's saying, hey, we have the best, the greatest, the brightest. Christianity is obsolete. You have an antichrist, the final antichrist who will come on the platform of peace, world peace, and yet he's full of deception. You have an antagonizer, an enemy, an accuser named Satan. The Satan, an adversary who is his work is based on lies and deception. So deception is a very important thing to refer to. Especially when you're dealing with the text, talking about where people stand, be it in their flesh or in righteousness, being born again by his word. There's a fine line. Verse seven, then is clear. Just because you say, sing, seminar or sermonize connection to God doesn't mean you are. It doesn't mean you are. Those things are not the means to righteousness. You may certainly sing. You may certainly preach. You may certainly do those things that accord with righteousness being of a new nature. But those things don't lead you there. Those things don't lead you there. You don't earn salvation by those means. Salvation is not by identification with people. It's not by identification with people. It's by being found in him, being found in Christ. So then it says in all those things, where is your mind and what does your walk say about your affiliation? I bring all this up because that this was as Paul's dealing with it. This was the error of the Jews. They built a whole nation on the level of deception I'm referring to a whole nation. 
But listen, only the new birth places the believer, once an unbeliever, in the kingdom. Only the new birth. There's nothing else. It's only the new birth. And only the believer then can please God because God is pleased eternally with his son in him. And has outfitted the believer with righteousness and good works that bring God pleasure. It starts with God saving a man and a woman or child and then placing them in right standing before him and then giving that person the works to do that please him. And when you step back from all that, the, the I would call it the amazing grace of all that. When you step back and you understand it, you look and you go, wow. And even in all that, that is the same way that God gives me assurance. It's the same way. It is so dangerous in the theater of spiritual warfare to want to seek assurance from other means except scripture. It's dangerous. Because Satan operates outside of scripture. He operates outside of the confines. So you go to somebody and you say, am I a Christian? And they set this book aside and they point you in all these directions. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. I believe that's why we have to deal with this again. I believe it's why in this era with which we live, we have to deal with this. Paul is not speaking of attaining to the new birth first in this particular section and then some other level of spirituality. Look at uh, look at what he says after verse eight. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God in verse nine. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, if you have the spirit of God, you are pleasing to him. You are in the spirit. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you. Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now you're talking about the indwelling of Christ as a power for your sanctification, but also the spirit of Christ as as an assurance of your salvation. The spirit of Christ in you, not just what he did there on the cross, but him living in you and indwelling you and, and then endowing you with that power and that power. The same power that raised him from the dead is the power for your sanctification. He's dealing with the nature, Paul is, and how it plays out at the outset of salvation and then how the new nature impacts the Christian's progressive sanctification. And all I mean by that is the ongoing nature by which the believers cleanse. And then that produces the evidence that you and I have been cleansed. Notice what he goes to. Verse nine, the indwelling of the spirit of God in you. It's so important. Subjecting yourself to God is evidence that you are not in the flesh. Subjecting yourself to God is the evidence that you're not in the flesh. His conclusion is simple. If you do not have the spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. If you do not have the spirit of Christ and talking about Christ does not mean you have the spirit of Christ in you. 
talking about Christ may mean that you have the spirit of Christ in you when tied to righteousness. It certainly means that. So it's not so much what people say. It's not what they say. It's where they stand. So today you can say you belong to Christ, but you must actually belong to Christ. You can say you belong to Christ, you must actually belong to Christ. Because if you do, righteousness is not only what you have, and I'm talking about eternal righteousness, but you are alive to righteousness, Paul says. You're alive to righteousness. The life is alive to it. And you will in the verses beyond this text that you are uh, that you understand, you'll realize, and we'll look at this even in the next uh, verses next time, we'll look at this. You'll see evidences that you're dead to sin. You're dead to sin. You're alive to righteousness. It's, a, it's almost a picture that he's painting of when one wakes up in the morning. That they're alive. They're alive to the day. The day is upon them. And for those who don't wake up in that morning, they're dead. It's very simple. They're not dead because they can't open their eyes. They're dead because they can't function. Everything is stopped. But the power of the sanctified or cleansed life is empowered by what I said, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. A lot of talk about the cross, but yet, sadly, in the theater of deception, a lot of undermining the power of the cross in the life of the believer. So you have to have it both ways. Either the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is powerful to establish righteousness and to cause people to live righteously, or it's not. A lot of people preaching a theoretical cross. But the cross is actually what occurred historically, eternally, divinely, but it's also that which establishes for me to live like Christ, to live like him. It is the power of a sanctified life and a cleansed life is empowered by the same power that raised them from the dead. And then it produces in us deeds that are consistent with our new nature. Yes, that's for God, certainly for others, but you and I can see that. We can see that in ourselves. You can look back and say, I'm, I'm, I'm not who I used to be. Based on what Christ has accomplished in me, based on him living in me, based on what I do now versus what I did before. But that's the problem with a seared conscience. When you only dress up the outer man and you've never come to terms with the truth and the word of God. You've either vocationalized it or you've simply devotionalized it for some profit. When you when you stand in that way, it's not because the word doesn't have power. It's because you think you have power. And people will respond to your power for a little while. But then they have to stand before God themselves. Next time we'll examine a question that I believe confronts us and confronted the Romans as Paul taught it. We'll examine what then is our obligation. Okay, if we're living in the spirit, if we're living according to eternal righteousness, if we belong to Christ. What is our obligation? In other words, to whom do we owe our allegiance? Is it the spirit of the flesh? Is it the spirit of the flesh? And then Paul will show all the deeds of the flesh. Uh, next time we'll look at this and uh, hope it encourages our hearts even more as we understand, seek to understand even more and walk in being saved by grace through faith. Let's pray.